Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is lawyer, professor, author, and mom, Kimberly Whaley. Professor Whaley is a frequent legal analyst guest on CNN, BBC, and CBS, and is an excellent follow on Instagram. She is also one of my favorite authors, and we will be discussing her latest book today, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. Professor Whaley, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Ian, for having me and for that kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So let's talk about your book. Why did you decide to write it? And what do you hope people learn from it? So, as you know, it's the second uh, in a series. The first book was How to Read the Constitution and Why. And I wrote that book, frankly, because I was seeing so much of the Constitution jumping from the headlines in the news once Donald Trump took office, frankly. And a lot of it was either not entirely accurate or lawyers speaking to lawyers. And so I decided to write a book that translates the Constitution into everyday language for people. And that's the first book. And then when I got to the end of the first book, I came to what should be maybe an obvious conclusion, but it wasn't for me up until that point, even having taught law for 15 years. And that is that all of our constitutional rights, all of anything we care about as a matter of policy, climate change, LGBTQ rights, uh, immigration, healthcare, all of it really comes down to the ballot box yet even in you know a, a high turnout presidential year election year it's only about 60 percent of uh, eligible voters who cast votes in america so i think we have uh, a crisis in civic education and in understanding you know that um the right to vote is 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 like a di- it's like winning the lottery globally but it's you know it's a diamond amidst a bunch of rubble. Uh, And if it weren't so valuable, we wouldn't be having so many fights in court and amongst politicians. So the goal of the book is to give give people a one-stop shopping to understand what the Constitution says, what are terms like gerrymandering, I mean, what, what, what does it mean to have election interference from a form of government, but also to be able to flip through to your state and get basics on how to register, at least at that point, it was published, things have changed because of COVID. But if you're moving, what do you do? If you're, you have an elderly parent in a, a, in a you know, a facility, how, what do you do about their uh, ballot? If you've got a college, child off to college, all of those practical things uh, are hopefully captured in the book. Wonderful. I really enjoyed your book, How to Read the Constitution and Why, um, because you actually have the full text of the Constitution in it. And most people would be surprised to learn that 
it's a very short document and somewhat easy to read. Yeah, it's a very short document. I mean, it is a little, some of the language is a little arcane, uh, but when, but I think what surprises a lot of people about the Constitution is that it's not black and white, that most of the answers to hard problems are not in the text of the Constitution, that there are really good arguments on both sides, usually for squishy language in a very old text that dates back to 1787, and that the Supreme Court, therefore, regardless of ideology, whether a justice claims to be a textualist and originalist, they really are imposing subjectivity and personal points of view in deciding uh, how to read ambiguous language. So that's the front part of the book, which is kind of the, the cliff's notes, the footnotes to what the text says, because the text alone doesn't tell you, as you know, what the Constitution has come to mean in 2021. Yeah, and I think that does um, frustrate a lot of people that some of these big Supreme Court cases come down to 5-4 decisions, because you're like, wait, what four of the greatest legal minds disagree with it? It can confuse people. <laughs> yeah, and it's particularly confusing given the rhetoric uh, out of even Supreme Court justices. And, you know, I unapologetically name Amy Coney Barrett in her confirmation hearings last fall, claiming that somehow she only applies the obvious reading of, of ambiguous language. I mean, um, we'll take even the Second Amendment. It says right to bear arms. It doesn't define arms. Uh, is that a pistol? Is that a knife? Is that, you know, plutonium to build a nuclear weapon? It's not defined there. And there are two ways of, or I should say three ways of defining it. One is Congress can step in and give an, an explanation. But now we have this polarized Congress where it's all about winning and making the other side lose, not actually getting things done. So that doesn't happen. Number two is you could actually amend the Constitution, but that also goes back to Congress. And it's not even just a 60 majority in the Senate due to a filibuster, but you're talking super majorities in both houses plus in all all of the states to ratify a change. So that's really difficult. So oftentimes it comes down to five humans on the court who are not elected, who serve for life and who are not representative of the diversity of our culture, um, who basically provide definitions to constitutional text. Um, and when they do that, it's set in stone. You might as well literally footnote the constitution and that's, that's what the book does. Um, and as you indicate, most of it is really squishy. So those people who are upset about, um, you know, how the process has been, and I'm one of them, for putting people on the Supreme Court are, are, legit, are legitimate to be upset. Those people who are upset with how a justice rules, whether conservatives or progressives, don't necessarily understand the dynamic and the reality of legal analysis, which is people have to make calls about ambiguous language. And they're doing what they're there to do, and they have differing opinions. So getting them on is the, is absolutely crucial. But we've seen, for example, Donald Trump hammer Justice Kavanaugh publicly recently for not voting uh, to overturn aspects of the 2020 election. Um, we also ha we know Justice Kavanaugh was, uh, you know, has been roundly criticized, or people are worried about his position, what, what his position might be on. Um, on some issues of equality, 
particularly given the confirmation hearings with uh, Christine Blasey Ford, etc. Um, but I do, I'm one who would take issue with how he got on the court. Now that he's on the court, uh, you know, um, there, there are two ways of reading lots of ambiguous language. Well, that's one of the perks of the lifetime appointment is you theoretically don't have to bow to political pressures, right? That's the theory behind it. Exactly. That is the theory um, in behind it. And uh, but the people on the court are humans and they have their own points of view. I'm just writing a piece just now before this pod for Politico about uh, the the Supreme Court's last term. And just let me give you an example. Um, So the Eighth Amendment bans cruel and unusual punishment. And in two decisions in 2012 and 2016, the court said, okay, if you're a juvenile, if you're under the age of 18, a state can't send you to jail for life automatically for murder. Why? Because for the same reason juveniles can't be executed, their brains aren't fully developed, they're reckless, they're, they're you know, they, 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 they evolve with time, they're just kids, right? They're not like adults. So the, the case... Um, before the court this term was, well, um, okay, even if it's discretionary, does the court who's sentencing a juvenile have to at least consider could they be rehabilitated, right? So if the idea is, okay, we're putting you in jail for life, okay? So is there some chance if you're 15, between 15 and 80 or whatever the life expectancy, that you might, maybe you just got in trouble and this is a bad moment, like maybe you'll turn another leaf, right? You'll turn over a leaf. You're, you have a strong family. You have an interest in, I don't know. I mean, this is a kid that could probably p- come around. It's Justice Kavanaugh authored a 6-3 purely ideological decision saying no, saying juveniles don't, so long as the court takes into account the fact that they're underage, they can still go to jail for life without delving in to whether they could be turned around. Now, that is largely subjective, Ian, right? That's not in the Constitution, how we want to, do we want to be, have compassion for these youth, or do we not? That's, in my mind, largely, to a large degree, what it comes down to, rather than what the law says. Um, So it's impossible to expect these justices to leave their personal experiences, their value system, their religious inclinations, uh, their politics, all of that at the door. It's impossible. Well, that's just what we need in our country, more people incarcerated, right? I mean, I think we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, which is so alarming because China and India have one billion, with a B, more people than us, and we still incarcerate more than anyone else. And I think I read the other day that your brain really isn't fully developed until age 23 or 24 or something like that. So that is, that's troubling. Right. I mean, and I tell that to my friends who have all, all, like me, have teenagers or young people. Uh, We really do have to, as parents, hold our breath and wait till they get to the point where the cerebral cortex is fully developed. The other, of course, statistic that's troubling, not only do we incarcerate the most, but we disproportionately incarcerate black and brown people uh, who tend to disproportionately be low income. So the other wrinkle is, you know, I mean, I actually know Justice Kavanaugh personally. He's an affable guy. Um, but, you know, he grew up in, in affluence, went to Yale. Uh, my guess is 
many of most of the people who who's this decision affects don't have that kind of background. They come from a very, very different background that had it been Brett Kavanaugh's position in the same background, he might have been led to the to to actions that that now um, that decision is standing against, you know, having real compassion for. And that that is a personal thing. That is a personal thing that has to do with your background experience. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what's going on in Texas. Uh, good timing for your book. Your book is an important read, especially what's going on right now. So Texas state Democratic lawmakers made national news recently with their protest of a proposed bill. They actually left the state and took refuge in D.C. So, Professor, give us some background information on this situation. So there are across the country after, frankly, primarily, I think, the Senate runoffs in Georgia, which shifted control of the Senate essentially in runoff races to Democrats in an upset. Nobody thought that would happen. Um, states are across the board or across the board because because that's the case. But in record numbers, passing, trying to pass laws to make it harder to vote, basically. And since the Supreme Court gutted a key part of the statute called the Voting Rights Act that that polices those kinds of maneuvers, there's no real cop on the block for this anymore. So Texas is one of those that was particularly aggressive. Republicans in Texas are particularly aggressive. Um, I had, you might have uh, seen, I, I do a show on Instagram called Simple Politics. I had once... On the show, Chris Hollins, who ran um, in one of the major cities in Texas, the COVID uh, voting process, and he allowed 24-hour voting. And that record, the numbers were record in terms of people coming out. Listen, it's great if I can vote at four in the morning before I do my early shift at the hospital. Um, well, Texas Republicans came in uh, with a big package of legislation that would ban things like drive-through voting, um, 24-hour voting, banned, um, ban on distributing mail-in ballot applications, um, uh, monthly citizenship checks, um, enhancing poll walker, watcher provisions. So, uh, you know, we saw some disputes in Pennsylvania around from the Republican side, from the Trump side saying, listen, we didn't get to watch the ballot counting. Our people didn't get to watch the ballot counting. So we're seeing not just in Texas, but other places, laws that are giving poll watchers free reign to really be obnoxious and obstructionist um, and banning any kind of law enforcement activity to stop them from stopping the counting of ballots. Now, there are, there are other provisions in the Texas in the Texas packages, including limits on or stringent, more stringent ID requirements. And, you know, but I'll just say, Ian, I think the ID debate is a little arcane now. It's kind of, it's small potatoes at this point. I mean, the federal government could pass and and fund a law to give everybody federal ID and that would just go away. And of course, just bring your federal ID, okay? I mean, and then no non-citizen could vote because they can't get the ID and we could just all go home and stop fighting about it. Um, that is a red herring to claim there's voter fraud. Uh, there is no serious voter fraud in this country. It's like being struck by lightning. It's not a problem, but it's still 
being used in propaganda to justify what amounts to making it hard to vote. This is what I said, you know, earlier, your vote is like the diamond amidst a sea of rubble. Uh, it's so, so, so valuable. So there's such a massive lockdown in Texas on all branches of government by the Republican Party that Democrats worried about this package realized the only way they could potentially slow it down and stop it um, is to deny Republicans a quorum on the day that is voted. So they, they physically left the state of Texas and came to Washington. Uh, I think they chose Washington so they could they could lobby members of Congress. And I know uh, Senator Klobuchar has indicated this week with another a colleague that she's going to start hold hearings on what's happening in Texas, but to try to shed light on um, how, and I think in from their point of view, how coercive and troubling and disturbing. I mean, there have been tears shed by legislators on the Democratic side people of color about what's happening in Texas. Uh, but it's just showing how um, how very, very uh, urgent and radical things are becoming. And I should add a couple other things, Ian, what we're seeing. We're also seeing laws passed to penalize people who work to actually make elections happen um, for making errors. Criminal penalties, if you mail a ballot without a specific request, criminal penalties or you know massive fines, $25,000 fines if you empty the drop box a few minutes late. Um, who is going to make either nothing as a volunteer or paltry amounts of money making our democracy work if they could either be bullied by poll watchers, end up in, with criminal liability or massive civil fines for making good faith mistakes? This is a dismantling of democracy itself. It's under our noses. And, you know, in a weird way, the, the book, I wrote the book out of the urgency of what's happening in our voting system and things are even worse. Um, and, you know, I can talk about uh, the Electoral Count Act and, and what I, you know, what I really think needs to happen at the at the federal level, because the real danger is not just voter suppression laws that we're seeing in Texas, but even if we were to sweep away all of these restrictions and say, by mirac some miracle, everybody who wants to vote votes in the next presidential election, what what this big lie that is this hoax around it being a fraudulent election, which it wasn't, this big lie, lie is psychologically paving the way to cancel votes, to cancel votes in December when state legislatures certify electoral, the electoral um, college votes per state. There's nothing in the Electoral Count Act, which is the federal legislation that implements the Electoral College, nothing even requiring legislators to respect the popular vote. So I think what we're going to see is, okay, Electoral College in state A goes to Biden or the Democratic nominee. But you know what? We as, just like we're seeing in Texas, the Texas Republicans think that was a bogus election. So we're going to give it to the Republican. And barring that, as we saw on January 6th, the, the insurrection, um, the Electoral Count Act, there's no law requiring Congress people to actually respect the certification from the states. So at this point, they can. we saw this even after the election. We saw Republicans say, Joe Biden, I'm not going to gavel him in as president. 
Um, there's nothing requiring them to respect the states, which are, and there's nothing requiring the states to respect, respect individual voters. So we can see in January 2025, even if it gets past individual legislature certification, we could see in the United States Congress, Congress saying fake election, the big lie gives us justification now because the election, last election was stolen. We're going to ignore the Electoral College and we are going to pick who's president. Now, Ian, that's the end. E-N-D, fini of American democracy, because that's not just saying, oh, only white people can vote or only males can vote, which is the history of our of America. It's saying even if white males, the only white males with money, the only privileged class who could vote in 1787, even if they do vote, if they're not Republicans that adhere to the big lie, we are canceling their vote. Your vote is gone. That's a new day in American history. And that is the end of democracy. And that's why this the midterms are so crucial um, because America has to turn out to elect Republicans and Democrats to the Congress who are rejecting this notion that the last election, which is expert after expert is called the safest in the history of America, the most secure, was not fake. We have to elect people that are gonna to adhere to truth uh, over politics and respect the right to vote. So how do we figure out a middle ground to try to uh, come up with some solutions? I like what you said earlier about a federally issued ID. What if we had that as well as a national paid holiday to vote? Do you think that's... Well, I mean, there have been, there have been recommendations over the years uh, that when Mitch McConnell was Senate Majority Leader, he refused to bring to the floor. But there, were, there have been pa at least once legislation that passed the House to have sat voting on a Saturday. I mean, I, yeah... There's lots of things we could do, Ian. There's a lots in HR1. Automatic voter registration when you're a certain age. Um, automatic vote by mail. Um, same day registration. The issue is um, we are fighting against people who want to keep people from voting. And there's a lot of excuses around that. But th there's easy solutions. If we could all agree that, listen, let's just let people vote and let's fight about the issues. Let's fight about policy. Do you want high taxes? Do you want low taxes? Do you want um, drilling in the Arctic? Do you not want drilling in the Arctic? Do you want a national uh, health care plan? Do you not? Like that's, we can just let people vote and have the debate around policy or the issues. Right now, instead, we have one party, what I call the version two of the Republican Party. It's not the traditional Republican Party. It's not their party of Lincoln that was anti-slavery and uh, lots of things. I mean, that's not what we're calling the Repu the mainstream. We have one party that is saying, we don't want the voters to be in charge anymore at all. We want to be in charge. And we're not even getting to the policy debates. And we have Democrats, unfortunately, it's the only party right now that's still trying to prote protect people's people's constitutional right to choose their their leaders. How to deal with this? I mean, Ian, I think it's a bigger issue, and I know you're going to get to this in the pod, around misinformation in the digital age. Um, you know, in, 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 the, in the 1970s, during Watergate, I spoke one time in the BBC green room to a member of Congress who was a Republican who voted um, in the House to impeach Richard Nixon. And I was like, wait a minute, how could that happen? He goes, because the Washington Post and New York Times and 60 Minutes and everybody was printing the same facts about what was going on and the American public 
were pressuring us to do something about it. They got one set of facts. We don't have that anymore. And that that's really the wrinkle that I don't have any answers to, unfortunately. Yeah, well, even Trump's own attorney general, though, uh, William Barr, he did come out and um, say that the election was not stolen, right? So it's just, it's kind of a fringe of the Republican Party. But I agree with you. I mean, what happened in Arizona is really scary. I think they did pass something, uh, the state legislature there saying that they could basically disregard um, the votes of the people. Is that accurate? You know, I'd have to go back, you know, because there's so many across the country. Um, But I know if what you're talking about, I know in Georgia, where, of course, uh, President Trump is, former President Trump is under criminal investigation for calling the Secretary of State and asking him to find enough votes to swing that election to him, notwithstanding multiple audits, including a hand count. And he said no. In Georgia, they've passed legislation taking the power from Brad, Brad Raffensperger to, to call the popular vote and giving it now to, to the legislature in Georgia. So that's an example of giving the legislature the power to cancel the vote the next round. And let me just say, I, I, I just, I'm not, I mean, I don't know that unfortunately this is still a fringe of the Republican Party in part because 160 something, 164 or something signed on to a petition in the Supreme Court to cancel the votes in four other states, the, a petition filed by um, Ken Paxton. And of course, Liz Cheney, the number three in, in the House, was stripped of her leadership position because she did not adhere to the fringe. So that is a, a statement of the majority of Republicans in the United States Congress that we are backing the lie, not the truth, and we're going to oust Liz Cheney because she adheres to the truth. So unfortunately, it's not a fringe anymore, and I don't have the poll numbers at my, at my fingertips, but you know, shocking numbers of Americans, primarily in the Republican Party, believe that the election was fraudulent. Just like um, you know, we've read there's a story this week out of Alabama, a nurse who. Um, is dealing with patients, young people, 20s and 30s, unvaccinated, dying of COVID, saying, can I have my vaccine now? And she says, sorry, it's too late. And when she asks, why didn't you get it? Well, I read it on the internet. So misinformation is not just about the election. It's literally killing people. And, and you know, we can say, well, they should have had better information, but that's really begs the question, okay, how how do we learn how to get good information? When I was a kid, we were taught how to get information. Go to the card catalog, you go to the microfiche, you look at the index. You, that's not a skill that we need anymore. The skill is the opposite. You're, you have a flood of information. How do you sort through it and find the good stuff? It's a brand new challenge that has come on us so quickly and Pedagogically, it's not being taught in the schools. And we as, you know, adult Americans certainly don't have it down, let alone even having a discussion about it as an urgent issue. And I think uh, the darker angels are exploiting that right now. And it could it could mark the end of democracy in America in the next few years, for sure. Very pessimistic, but you might be right. (laughs) I hope not. Um, you know. Oh, I hope not either. I mean, I you know, you know, I've been working on this for years. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be a downer. On the other hand, um, 
when the stormtroopers are at your back door, it's too late. It's like the COVID people in, in Alabama hospital. I'm just trying to let people know this is this is urgent and it requires us all to join hands as we the people and save it. Uh, and now is the time. It's not six months, it's not a year, it's not two years, it's now, it's now. Now is the time to get in the lifeboat and get off the Titanic. Um, I think it's I think it's savable for sure. I am actually quite sanguine. I'm an optimist. I, you know, but it's not going to happen on its own, and the tide is going the wrong direction. So this needs to be all hands on deck right now. Yeah, I think I have a different perspective being out here in California. It's a different world. I think you were in D.C. <laughs> during uh, January sixth, right? Or you were in the D.C. area? I was. I watched it from a mile or so away, a couple miles away, on my TV in my living room. That's pretty scary. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I've spent so much time down there. I mean, I've pushed my kids in strollers around there. Um, what was amazing to me was the hours that went by and there was no police presence, really meaningful police presence. Where I just kept sitting there. Where are they? Because I've been down there hundreds of times. There are people on horseback. There are sniffing dogs. There are guardrails set up everywhere. There are... You know, sometimes you people in full, full SWAT gear there. I mean, there they DC has massive events all the time with hundreds of thousands of people. July 4th, every inauguration, they know how to manage. DC and the federal government know how to manage massive crowds, um, crowds, crowds that have people with different points of view. And the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was on Twitter calling people to come to Washington uh, um, in December. So everybody knew there'd be a lot of people here. And I just don't understand what happened. I mean, how, what happened on the front end, not the back end, right? So, so far we've seen hundreds of prosecutions of the protesters and the first sentencing was last week. But I wanna know what, what was the meltdown on the front end? And it's not just those poor Capitol police officers, one of whom lost his life. Um, that were overwhelmed. It's not their fault. The fish stinks from the head, Ian. And we need to get to bottom of that for everybody's sake so that it doesn't happen again. I, I agree. Um, but just in terms of practical solutions to move us forward, I do think a national paid holiday to vote is a no-brainer. I mean, that's something we could probably get done. I, I could see bipartisan support for that. Why hasn't that been? Well, I was against it. So I, I, I don't, unfortunately, um, I think it's, unfortunately, I don't know about bipartisan support. However, um, Joe Manchin, right, who is the swing voter in the Democratic Party. West Virginia, so, right? West Virginia. He has said he would, he would support a skinnier version of HR1, which is, you know, the For the People Act, which would have all of these changes to laws. And and he has also been on record with Kristen Cinema saying that they do not support doing something with the filibuster, ending the filibuster. Right now, the reason that nothing, this kind of legislation can't budge is because even though the Constitution allows passage of laws by a bare majority, a procedural loop known as the filibuster, which allows the minority party to object unless 10 of them can be brought to the majority side, that is basically turned the 50 
50 vote or 51 vote majority to a 60 supermajority um, through a procedural rule. So in order for something like, a, I agree with you, a national holiday to vote, um, in order for that to pass, it would have to be a stripped down version of HR1 and arguably the Democrats are way too ambitious. Maybe just a clean bill that like HR4 would fix the Voting Rights Act that was gutted by Shelby County. And then maybe, you know, like you said, something like a Saturday to vote, a holiday to vote. And there's been talk about amending the filibuster just for voting legislation on the theory that is that important. So there are lots of maneuverings. Um, and I don't think this is just the Republican Party to blame. I, I mean, I'm not inside Congress. Sometimes I wonder what their strategy is um, because there are, I agree that there are some shots across the bow, including amending the Electoral Count Act to say some basic things. You can't blow off the popular vote entirely. You can't cancel votes. Period. So say, guess what? You can't cancel votes. You've got to, you've got to respect the popular votes. Now you can fight over which popular votes are legitimate votes, but you can't just throw them in the trash. That would be an easy fix. That's there's nothing even pending on that. And then something clean, like you suggest, like okay, Saturday voting. Um, that's how, that's not getting into ID laws. That's not getting into mail-in voting. That it's just saying it's a holiday or a national holiday. We'll make Tuesday. A paid holiday that's just expensive because you're gonna have to fund that but that the, the money always gets to be a problem yeah i want to talk about the id law requirement real quick i mean what if that would be something thrown in to appease the republicans a federal issued id what are your thoughts on that i mean i think that's a great idea i just don't think republicans are really worried so much about actual voter fraud and ids i think there'd be a reason to object to that because that would mean more Democrats, immigrants, black and brown people making it to the polls. That's really the problem. I mean, that's been the problem since America was founded, right? 400 years on enslaved human beings. The 15th Amendment made made it unconstitutional to ban black men, essentially, from the ballot based on the color of their skin. And then then the, the states pushed back with these cute voter suppression laws like, you know, poll taxes and literacy tests and things like that. Um, and we're seeing it again. So I, I think this is, a, I think it's great, but the only way around it is to do something about the filibuster because, because listen, the statistic that sticks with me, and I'm not in California, I'm in DC, but DC is primarily African-American. I mean, this is, it would be helpful to get two Senate votes for DC people. That would, that would make a major impact because we would have two more Democrats for sure in the Senate. Um, and then incumbents would have to work harder for their votes and not just sit on their laurels, the senators in the more rural, smaller populated states. But the statistic that really sticks out with me is that fewer than 50% of the youth in this country under the age of 16 are white. Wow. So we are literally on the train for whites to become the minority population in this country, right? That is where the birth rate's going. That's where the demographics are going. The young people who are me voting in a few years are not predominantly white. Okay. So I think that is really the undercurrent because, you know, the, the Republican Party tends to get most of its support from older white Americans. And um, so instead of, again, talking about policy, let's bring young people to our party based on our ideas. They're trying to cheat their way there by just keeping those young people 
keeping the whites in the majority by not letting the black people vote. And how do you do that? Not by saying black people can't vote, but just, okay, we'll close most of the polling stations in the low income neighborhoods, but have lots of them in the white neighborhoods. Um, you know, it's just harder. Low income people don't have cars, so it's harder to get there. They have shift work. They might not have childcare. It's just, it's just for lots of reasons, it's harder. And the Supreme Court, as you know, this term, um, conservative majority really took another blow to the Voting Rights Act when it comes to uh, recognizing voting rights as something that we court pretty much gave the right to vote the back of the hand yet again. It's really a problem. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a bit. Um, some people have thought that the Texas state Demo- Democratic lawmakers' actions it's kind of like being a poor sport. You know, why not do a press blitz and present your arguments instead of just leaving to prevent a quorum? What's your response to that? I, you know, I, I think the response is that, that from their perspective, the damage is so severe um, and the, a press blitz, blitz is not going to change any votes. Uh, it's extraordinary to me. Uh, that there's that kind of uniformity in the Democratic Party in Texas. Uh, Democrats tend to be, you know, like herding cats. They have all different ideas. They're less on message than the Republican Party. And, you know, I think the response should be, okay, you, wow, you're that upset. It's almost like, you know, your, 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 your partner storms out and, you know, stays in a motel or hotel because you had such a big fight. What do you do? Hey, hey, you know what? Can we can we try that again? Do you want to grab a cup of coffee? <laughs> that that's that's how that's how uh, in real relationships we we reconnect with people. Uh, I mean, again, to use that analogy, you know, your partner could could complain to her girlfriend or get on Twitter. Or, I mean, that that's not gonna that's not going to change the dynamic between the two of you. I mean, there needs to be, I mean, the Democrats are calling the Texas Republicans out on what this is. And what I see is almost a silver lining to it, Ian, is um, it seems so desperate, these blatant assaults on democracy. It's it's almost like, you know, a, a cornered animal. They're going to lash out um, that it's it's, it's so desperate that that to me suggests it will ultimately fail. I mean, that voters are going to wake up and realize what this is. And this is called attention to something that I think up until this lax election cycle, people think voting is boring. Oh, that's, you know, I've talked to people in their twenties. Oh, that's for old people, but boring yawn, you know, that, that's yuck. Um, that's like, I don't know, reading about insurance. Um, but and now I think people are realizing it's about as hot as it comes. The vice president of the United States is tasked with dealing with with this. The United States Congress is, has it on on its plate. Um, people are, you know, spending their private private savings. Legislators in in, in an expensive state uh, city of Washington D.C. <laughs> um, and they don't make that much money. I don't know what they make in Texas, but here in in Maryland, it's amazing how little state legislators make. Well, I got to get one more. I got to get your response to this. Um, Dan Crenshaw issued a statement with some explosive allegations here. So Dan Crenshaw is a member of Congress from Texas, 
uh, and a Republican. He's also a Navy SEAL. And he said this on his social media post. Imagine if 50 GOP state reps skipped work, drank beer on a private jet while ignoring federal mask mandates, held a press conference to spread flagrant lies that have been debunked, and then infected the Speaker's office and White House with COVID. Just imagine. What do you think about that Um, post? (laughs) I mean, I think that's, you know, politician rhetoric and talking points. I mean, you can play that whataboutism game till, I mean, the issue is, um, are the Republicans willing to meet the Democrats some way and actually hash out some, I mean, it's the, it's the Republicans that have the affirmative thing on the table, not the Democrats. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, to me, it, it speaks, it, to me, it's not, uh, it's not the Democrats in this moment that are trying to overhaul voting rights. Um, it's a, it's the Republicans. So, I, if it were, if the tables were turned and and the Democrats um, were ma- making you know changes like that and the Republicans sta- stormed out, I mean my attitude would probably be, well, you just have to go back to the status quo, my friends. You know, worked for the last election. I mean that you know just leave Texas law the way it is. It, it actually it actually worked even in a pandemic. I don't see Texas voters clawing for more limitations on their ability to vote. <laughs> so um, I think we have to, we can't, and we can't um, disassociate uh, the drama from the underlying issues. We have to deal with the underlying issues for what they are. And the issues are Republicans want to make it harder for Texans to vote. And I, I don't, I'm just not down for that. I just think Texans, I mean, if you're in a wheelchair, uh, it's really helpful to vote from your car. Right. Well, and I think you make a good point that they're trying to fix a non-issue. If you look at the stats in terms of voter fraud, um, again, it's it's not really a significant issue. It's it's viewed that way, but if you look at the numbers, it's not really an issue. And and to your point, okay, you you keep asking, how do we fix this? Is there should be a voter hall at National Holiday? If if it is if it is voter fraud. This isn't, you don't fix it by forcing people in wheelchairs to get out of their cars and go into a church to vote instead of doing it through drive-by voting when there's no evidence that that produced fraud. Okay, so then if you're problem, if you have a problem with fraud, I mean, nobody wants fraud. Democrats aren't pro-fraud. Okay, let's figure out where the fraud happened and let's plug those holes. Absolutely. And maybe it is to your point. Maybe it is through a federal ID. I mean... The IRS processes our tax returns. Um, we all have a social security number. We get a social security card. We all do banking online or on our phones um, virtually. Uh, there's all kinds of things that, you know, we have medical information floating around there. There are all, you know, various doctors and on websites. There are all kinds of places in our lives where fraud is possible and it could have devastating consequences and you know so when it comes up you get an email from Walmart that you made a purchase and that they, they you know maybe their 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 database was breached and this is what we're going to do so so we deal with it we deal with the risk that important things can fall by the wayside but we still do it from the from the safety of our homes um i don't know why 
voting somehow is something we we can't do in a convenient way, even though we do all other kinds of things conveniently, despite the risk of fraud. Yeah. Another issue I hear come up a lot is that it's so complicated, especially out here in California during the last election with all the propositions. I mean, I'm a lawyer and I read through it and some of these were extremely convoluted and complicated. And I think it just deters people from voting. How do we fix that? How do we make the process easier to understand? Well, I also think that could be a federal thing. Um, You know, in Canada, I talk about this in my book. There's one ballot. Everybody gets the exact same ballot. They've seen it since the first day they voted. Um, You know, you color in the white circle or the black circle. I can't remember. I think it's a white circle. Uh, And that's, I don't know. I mean, Congress can pass laws that affect voting across the country. I don't think people understand that. It it does ultimately, the framers did leave it to the state. So, So there should be more national standards across the board. It shouldn't be... You know, in Oregon, you can walk in on the same day, register and vote. Um, but in Florida, it's 30 days you, um, to if you want to vote. And you, if you're if you are, have a felony conviction, even though there was a referendum to allow you to vote, you have to figure out how to pay your past fines, even though the state won't tell you what they are. You know, I mean, it's just like it shouldn't be. Uh, or I know I think it, one of the Western states for students um, say you've got a, I can't remember, my, you know, someplace, say it was Minnesota, um, you, say you're a, a parent with a child in college in Massachusetts, um, for that child to vote during the pandemic from their dorm room and their masks in COVID, they had to find another student from their state, say Minnesota, to co-sign their ballot. Um, what, what, right? Or, in yeah. te- you know, that's really hard to do. Or in Texas, ID laws, you can use a you can use a license to for firearms, but you can't use a, an, a student ID issued by the University of Texas. Huh. Well, um, the last thing I want to discuss with you is social media and free speech. Um, if we read the Constitution, the first five words of the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. So it only applies to the First Amendment protections only apply to state action. Um, And in fact, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they have their own First Amendment free speech rights and freedom of association. Um, But this is kind of the new public forum. And it's um, it's a complicated issue for our society today. I want to read you a statement from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki and um, get your response on it. So she argued this week in an effort to combat misinformation that if a person is banned from one social media platform, he or she should be banned across all social media platforms. Is this state action now? No, because she's not coercing anything. I mean, maybe it was... A misstatement, or maybe she should stay out of that, or she should be lobbying. The president should be talking to the Congress <laughs> to pass a law that does that. Um, but no, I'm glad you raised that at a piece. Uh, Donald Trump has filed multiple lawsuits against uh, Twitter, um, YouTube, and Facebook around this issue, around being kicked off, and they raised the First Amendment. He raises the First Amendment. And as you said, the First Amendment binds 
government. Um, there is something called the state action doctrine that is a loophole. You can pretend that a private actor is government if the government really controls them, but it's a very high standard. And uh, one of these platforms, maybe it was, I can't remember, I guess it was Twitter, I think, banned the president when he was still president. So his argument is basically, when I was president, I controlled you so much that you had to ban me that that just it's a it's like a mind bender, of course. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Back to our earlier thing. You know, these social media companies have way too much power. Full on, they're they're richer than any corporation in the history of humankind, and it's happened very fast. Why? They don't make their money selling widgets. They make their money selling user data, which we give to them for free. They capture all our stuff, our clicks, and we have to be, and we're not dum-dums. It's like there's no way to function in society. But I say to myself, I, I ask this, imagine, Ian, um, that if Facebook was going to sell your data, they had to pay you for every click that they purchase or that they use, one penny or a half a penny, right? So instead of Jeff Bezos about to make be a trillionaire, and going to you know into outer space, that money would go to regular people. So Jeff Bezos could use that money, th those that information, to make more money. So we are in a situation. They're so powerful. Legislators don't want to make them mad, so they're not regulating. So I think Jen is absolutely right that there are some common sense things that need to happen. The audience shouldn't so much be these corporations, it should be Congress. But, you know, at the end of the day, circling full back, it's the voters that really at the ultimate, at the, at the end of the day, have the power. If you, you know, we the people could push back against these big social media companies and say, listen, we want more accountability. It's a little harder to do because you can't fire them. <laughs> can't fire them at the ballot box. That's again what makes our voting rights so powerful. Well, what's baffled me is you would think the free market would step in and create more options if people are so disgruntled on Twitter and Facebook, but that really hasn't happened. No, I mean, that's why we have, you know, the Sherman Act. Um, that's why we have, which is the anti-monopoly statute. Um, that's why we had the stock market crash in the Great Depression is because, you know, pure market forces and, and capitalism doesn't self-regulate. There is um, there, there are inequalities that are created um, in terms of power and in terms of money. And that, so there is a role for government. That was, you know, why, um, you know, uh, J uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt had four terms in office because he pulled America out of that. And part of it was with his vision that America government can actually do more than stand in the sidelines um, that that market forces are not going to fix all social ills. They're just not. And, you know, we also have now in the, in the media world, big corporations gobbling up everything. I mean, if you trace like who owns, you know, MSNBC and I, I don't even, I mean, it, the, the hierarchies are shocking as far as the few giant conglomerates that own all of these outlets that we assume are somehow independent uh, independent corporations in that they have their own shareholders and their own their own standalone entities. No, this is these these spaceships are gobbling up everything in its wake, and that again is a role for government.
Well said. Professor Whaley, your latest book is What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. Again, can I add? Yes, February please. 1, my, February 1, my third book, which is now in editing, comes out. It's called How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Decisions. So we can continue this conversation then. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I like it. Um, you're also, again, an excellent follow on Instagram. Just search for Professor Kimberly Whaley. You'll learn quite a bit from her posts. Thank you so much for your time today. I always enjoy speaking with you. I, I enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.